Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, October 13th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 27 to 44. Ezekiel finishes the rebellious history of Israel up to his present day before he proclaims the Lord's promise to restore and redeem his people who will worship him in true faith. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wergau. Pastor Wergau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Oh, good to be back with you. Pastor Wergau, as we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context here in Ezekiel chapter 20. Anything that we should know about the prophet Ezekiel in general? And then particularly, just a reminder, what's Ezekiel been doing in this chapter and how does that transfer over into what we're getting today? Right. Well, I mean, in general, we know what we've kind of seen with the general theme of this book is uh, Ezekiel is a, a prophet of God speaking primarily to the to the exiles and God's mouth. He is calling them back to repentance uh, into true faith. And we'll see that Faith and worship will be a common theme that comes through here in this this little pericope that we have. But I mean, we kind of go back to Ezekiel's <clears throat> Ezekiel's uh, call, even in chapter two, to kind of get the gist of what he's getting at. And it's good for us to be reminded as we go through this, go back to why God called him and uh, calls him the son of man and sends him to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. That actually the idea of rebel will come up again here in our, in our section as well. And, and that's really what Ezekiel is about with his sermons that he's going through. And that's what we've had in chapter 20 with, with what he's been preaching and what he does in 20, what, what we've kind of seen is, is, is he draws the present day uh, there are Ezekiel's contemporaries, I should say, back to the history of, of Israel and where he says, you know, will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let me know the abomination of their fathers, right? And so we're looking back to the sins of the past in order. Again, this is this is God's whole purpose through Ezekiel is, is, is calling them to repentance. So looking back at the sins of the fathers in order for them, for Ezekiel's contemporaries to see that they, they are no better and this is their sin as well. And also, right along with that, seeing God's proper work of mercy for his people of old and how that has continued through the exodus, through the wander, uh, wilderness wandering. And even as we'll see in this text, before we, right before we get to the present day, we have the, the second generation of Israel after, right after they enter into the, the promised land, the conquest of the promised land. Right. So the the part of this sermon that we looked at yesterday took us up through that second generation in the wilderness, those who entered into the promised land. We're still going to have a little bit of that history that Ezekiel's got left to cover those who go into the promised land, that, that actual first gener- or second generation that's there in the promised land before he's going to draw it to the people he's talking to there in exile in Babylon. So that that brings us up to verse 27 of Ezekiel chapter 20. So we'll read more of his sermon here this morning. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, in this also your fathers blasphemed me by dealing treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, 
Then, wherever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. And that takes us up through verse 29. And that's right before Ezekiel makes the turn to preach to these elders who've come to him to inquire of the Lord. This is the last part of the historical section. So it's really, I mean, there's a bit of a continuation with where we left off yesterday, that generation, but now they're actually in the promised land and their idolatry that the Lord's been calling them to forsake all the way back since Egypt, they're still holding on to and they're building on even now. What's what's going on in these three verses, Pastor Warga? Right. And I think that's where we got that first word uh, in verse 20, 27, therefore. Now, grammatically, we understand therefore a lot of times as being an indicator of uh, a past thing, right? So, so, so we have a drawn a conclusion therefore this but but here it is that we're looking back at what israel had done in the past therefore they've done all these things but it also i think is a a matter not so much of consequence but of climax therefore as you kind of put it we see god's work through israel in the exodus and in the wilderness wandering and out to the 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 rebelliousness of of this people and then when they're finally brought into the promised land therefore now we see and and ezekiel is to speak to the people what took place after they entered into the promised land and that is all this stuff which we'll get to here in just a second about the high places and the sacrifices on the high places so i think we we really do structurally kind of come to a climax here which is what we'll use to bring it right to the present day contemporaries of 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 ezekiel all this history brings us to the promised land. And then we're going to make this connection with the sins of the fathers are still being perpetuated by the people of Israel in Ezekiel's day as well. And he refers to him as the son of man, which, I mean, that's pretty common in, in Ezekiel. Actually, this chapter started off, I believe, with that, with the son of man. Yeah, in chapter in verse 3, 23, son of man, speak to the elders. And we probably hit on this a little bit, but we understand, of course, that son of man as an identification of the prophet and actually the prophet's weakness in compared to uh, the creator, the omnipotence of the creator. And, and some translations of son of man dampen that a little bit to just talk about mortality, but I think it's quite appropriate to translate it quite literally, son of man, because then, of course, we do also have a connection with the New Testament and and Jesus, especially when he speaks of his humiliation, when he speaks of his his death on the cross and those sorts of things, refers to himself as the son of man, such as in his passion predictions and such. So I think that's it's, it's a good indicator for, for Ezekiel that God gives to Ezekiel to to call him the son of man. I think it's, oh yeah, I got to hear it's used 93 times in Ezekiel to what his place is and to those he's speaking to in light of uh, the omnipotence of, of the creator and, and how it's being displayed in what Isaiah is or what Ezekiel is is preaching. In terms of what he points out here in these few verses, there a couple of words stand out. First, the, that the father's blasphemed mm-hmm. and then this matter, you mentioned the high, the high places. Mm-hmm. What, are, what is Ezekiel accusing the people of with those two terms? Yeah. So first of the term blasphemed, I think that's a pretty common word that we we, we come across in, in theology and in the scriptures, this idea of blasphemy. It's interesting. A lot of times we translate uh, the Hebrew word for blaspheme, when it, uh, especially when it relates to God. But that same word might be translated as revile when it talks more on that horizontal level as with, with men. But blaspheme here, interesting note here from Hummel's commentary and the Concordia commentary on this is that usually 
blaspheme, and we think of this, refers to what you speak, right? You, you speak blasphemy. But here we see very clearly that it's laid out, they're blasphemed by their dealings, tre- dealing treacherously by, the, by their actual actions. And another place that blaspheme is used, actually, not necessarily with the words we speak, but with the actions of the people, was in Numbers 1530, where we read uh, the person who does anything with a high hand that is in, in defiance of God with the intention of malice, whether he's a native or a sojourner, whether when he does that thing, he blasphemes the Lord. And so not only the words of the people, but actually their actions, which very much relates to then uh, what we have here with the high places in this understanding of the the worship of the people. So the exact content of this blasphemy, this these treacherous dealings is this unauthorized worship on the high places. And uh, which is very interesting because when you read this, when you read verses, uh, verse 28 in particular, there's there's really only one word, I think, that really gives this indication that this is a bad thing, right? Because you have brought them into the land, swore to give. When they see the high hill and the leafy tree and they offer their sacrifices and there and they I'll skip the the, the one word that kind of gives us an indication here. But they send up their pleasing aromas and they poured out their drink offerings. All that sounds very um reminiscent of worship, even the tabernacle worship, right? But but then we have this where this is idea that this is the, they presented the provocation. The provocation is how the, the ESV translates this, that, that, that this this worship is, is a provocation or a vexation in their offerings. And that's a very clear indication that, that what Ezekiel is, what, what the Lord is speaking to the people of Israel through Ezekiel is the fact that what they're offering is, is actually not pleasing to the Lord precisely because it's not the worship of the one true God and him alone, but it's pagan or even just as bad syncretistic that is worshiping, claiming to worship Yahweh while also worshiping these foreign gods in these, in these locations, in these high places, which we'll see will be contrasted a little bit later on with worshiping on the, the holy mountain of God. Well, I mean, dig, dig into that contrast a little bit already. What is the, I mean, what's the big deal with going up to a mountain or a leafy tree? What, if, if it, especially if, if I'm still worshiping the, the Lord there, if I'm using his name, like why, why is that such a big deal? Why does God care so much about this? Right. I mean, as much as we have the kind of the shared vocabulary that this worship looks the same or, or that it is similar to the divine worship, the problem is, and this, this is the problem today as well, is that that worship does not, is not in accordance with God's word and his promises. Right. So God gives the prescription of who he is and who is how he is to be worshipped and even so much to say the place that he is to be worshipped where God has promised his presence for his people in, in the tabernacle and in the temple. But here it is. It is, I guess, the best way to see it is it's the object of the worship, and which is the object of, uh, of the trust of the faith that, that the people are are having. And so it is it is not geared to the one true God in him alone, but this is the offering that was made of, of pagan worship. Does that kind of clarify a little bit? I, I think so. And the fact that the Lord specified a place for his name, and maybe we can we can dig into that a little bit later when we get to the true worship, mm-hmm. but that, you know, the fact that the Lord said, go to this place, and they still said, well, we want to go to these places. And, okay. and I think, I mean, I know... The exiles that Ezekiel speaking to are from Judah, but when you think about the northern kingdom, particularly how mm-hmm. those high places that Jeroboam put in place of Jerusalem end up being the the sin that just carries throughout that history. I think, I mean that that's also something that went through my mind. Right, exactly, exactly. So it, it comes down to that root problem of it, it. It's worship that is going away from God's promises, right? And and I mean all 
true worship finds its place in the promises of God and in, in faith in those promises. So when we, when Israel takes worship into their own hands, not only to worship a false God, but to do this, to do these sacrifices and do these things on their terms, there's the problem, right? There's where they're turning away from God's word and promises, the clear and certain words uh, in doing things in this uh, illegitimate way, which again also speaks volumes to, to their, what their offering is, what their offerings, what their worship is, is being directed towards. And that is it's, it's uh, not to the one true God, but definitely if not blatant pagan worship, which we will see here. I mean, this is going to come up when Ezekiel brings it to the contemporary with the uh, probably the kind of the most explicit thing is the, 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 sac- the child sacrifices. But, but even before that, we have any of these sort of senses of worshiping God outside of where he has promised and how he has prescribed this worship to be is, is a breaking of, 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 of the first commandment and you shall have no other gods before me. Right. I mean, it's pretty striking how quickly what seems maybe innocent turns into just blatant idolatry and, <laughs> and in the most wicked of ways, which is we've, we've seen this matter of, of child sacrifice and we continue to see how it comes up. Let's see how Ezekiel brings this into the present day. So again, he's, he's brought out the abominations of the fathers all the way to what's been happening in the promised land. And now he's going to speak to the exiles who are not in the promised land. What about you? So we're picking up in verse 30. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of, inquired of by you. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. And that takes us through verse 32, and there's a pretty big transition after that verse. So, Pastor Werger, as we've been saying, here is where Ezekiel now brings it home to the elders who've come to inquire of him, and he preaches to them very directly. What do we see in these verses? Yeah, again, we see this, this, this therefore again, right? I think we're bringing things to kind of a climax of this accusation with verse 30. So, Ezekiel takes Israel from all those past sins of the fathers and calling those to remembrance of, of, of to the present situation then in the present sins, the present and issues that are being dealing with it. So he says, will you defile yourselves after the manner? Uh, and I think that's better actually translated, not manner, but way after the, after the, after the way of your fathers, because this is bringing us, uh, there, there's a lot more to this idea of way, both in the Old Testament, but also we see in, in relationship to the New Testament. And this is too, if you notice, this is the first time in the speech, which began in verse five, where, where he's bringing up the second person pronoun you. Right. So that's so really driving it home here. And that's where I think the you and the your fathers, the way of your fathers is really significant to see because that noun way definitely has more overtones of this orientation. It's a way of living, a way of believing and a way of worshiping, which is why Christianity is called the way, such as in Acts and the book of Acts. It's called the way or Jesus says he is the way, the truth and the life. So it's not simply ma- manner, I think, is just a little too soft. Right. Manner is just like. This is the this is this is a, the the manner as which which you're going to do it, but the the way indicates more of a solid kind of substance to it. That this is a this is a, a way or an action or a, a worship that is 
the way of your fathers, which you see where that left them, but you're continuing in the same way, which is, does not lead to life, but leads to, to death. I, I think the use of way there, that bringing that out and that more vivid image is helpful and fits very well with everything we've heard Ezekiel preach in this sermon so far. As we looked at the first part, one of the things we noted as as Ezekiel goes through each successive generation, up until what we're looking at today, he starts the cycle each time by reminding the people what he did for them. So what was the the blessing that he gave to them in Egypt when he was out Mount Sinai, when they were in the wilderness? You know, what was the blessing each time? What was the the way that the Lord was giving to his people? And then the history, of course, was that they chose the opposite way. And so I, I think, you know, understanding the word way here instead of manner is a helpful reminder of that, that, that even as Ezekiel here pretty well speaks condemnation and judgment because these elders in front of him have chosen the way of their fathers. There is still in the background that call back to the way that the Lord would put in front of them, mm-hmm. the good things, the blessings that are there for him in his name. And so I, I think, yeah, the, the, the way of your fathers, well, as opposed to what? The mm-hmm. way, the good way that the Lord is setting before you. Go back to that. Of course, the elders don't, and that's why Ezekiel's preaching this. So what exactly. what is this way that the the elders, these people right in front of him are choosing as he lays it out in these verses? Right, and he's pretty explicit with this way because he calls it a, a whoring after, right? The manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things. And this is uh, not uncommon, both in Ezekiel and throughout the Old Testament, this understanding of adultery or, or these sexual sins actually being related to idolatry. So really in the Lord's eye, idol- idolatry and adultery are, are equal things because he is his covenant relationship with his people is one that he is married to them, right? He has bound himself to them. And when they go after these other gods, so in his covenant, he's bound himself, pledged himself to his people and his faithfulness. And so it's 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 likened to marital infidelity when they when they run off to to other gods. And of course, this is fulfilled and really does find its place as we understand it in the picture in, in marriage even today. And, and we understand marriage being a, a deeper meaning and a deeper mystery as it relates to husbands and wife are related to Christ in the church as St. Paul lays out in Ephesians 5. Uh, so there's a bigger picture here uh, that we just simply have a reflection of it in our earthly relationships for sure. But but so much so is the Lord committed and bound himself to his people so that their false worship is is much more than just simply choosing a preference, but it is abandoning their first love. And of course, I, uh, chapter 16 brought this up quite a bit as well, but we, we see it here again laid out for for the people of Israel, that their sins are actually infidelity to their true God and a being adulterous or whoring after other false gods. Ezekiel, again, in verse 31, mentions the sacrifice of of children. We've seen him bring this up several times mm-hmm. in his preaching. What What's being accused there in verse 31? Yeah, again, this is, uh, we saw this in 1620 and through 21 as well. Uh, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me, to, to the Lord, and these you sacrificed to them, to the false gods to be devoured. And there again, whoring is mentioned as well. Uh, Hummel, Dr. Hummel, Horace Hummel makes a point of this. The the verse implies that child sacrifice was still being practiced by Israelites, even at this time, and now even in Babylon. It's possible that Ezekiel is again lumping together those exiles with those still in Jerusalem, but the alternative can't be ruled out. So these already exiled had so often showed themselves to be the same mind and spirit of 
those around, that's what the other nations were doing and those that were left behind, that they continued this heinous abomination. I mean, and we're talking quite literally of the sacrifice of, of children, that this is, and I mean, even archaeological evidence proves this. This was, this was part of pagan worship to the god Moloch. And, and this is uh, really, I think, what we can understand as the most uh, blatant and, and offensive of pagan worship. And uh, like kind of how we talked earlier when we were dealing with this, you know, sacrificing on the hills or the leafy trees. And, and these don't, these seem like the offering this synergistic worship. And we're just going to add, add this God to the plethora, how we kind of do it. And it seems very innocent, but I think we're drawn to the to, to where that ultimately leads and where that way ultimately leads. And it is a way to this, to this heinous really repudiation of the one true God and what he gives, which is life and, and even the life of his own son for the life of the people so that they are then offering these, these, these sacrifice of, of the life that God has given them to, to somehow appease, to appease God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the the repeated mention of this child sacrifice, because it was mentioned up in verse 26 of this chapter, the offering of their firstborn mm-hmm. as well, this repeated mention is a, a good reminder of just how what maybe seemed innocent to the people at the beginning, truly, this is where it leads. It wasn't innocent at the beginning, but when you see the fruit of it, boy, I mean, you, you see just how wicked it was already at the beginning. I, mean, I guess I'm reminded of that. How does in in James chapter one where he talks about desire giving birth to sin and then growing mm-hmm. and and it becomes death and and that's the progression that you're seeing here in the idolatry of the people of Israel and if it is in fact continuing there in exile in Babylon as the as the text does seem to indicate that is that is quite shocking that these people who have already begun to experience the Lord's wrath over their idolatry have diluted themselves so much there in exile that they would still be sacrificing children there. Mm-hmm. It shows you just why why Ezekiel's ministry there in exile with the harshness of his law proclamation is so necessary. It They're not just innocent ones there. They need the preaching of repentance just as much as the people back in Judah need Jeremiah to preach repentance. Mm-hmm. These exiles need Ezekiel to preach the repentance. And he certainly does. I mean, you know, he, he tells them again, they've defiled themselves by this. And and then to go back to how this whole thing started, you know, and he, he tells them, and you think you're going to come and, and ask me a question after you're doing this? Uh, you've got another thing coming. Right, exactly. So, yeah, I, I like how you point that out. I mean, there is this idea of, and, and quoting from James there is very, very good as well, because this speaks even to our day and age, because I know we might say, okay, obviously we're not sacrificing children, but this does get to the to the understanding of where sin leads, and, and even the more innocent and subtle or seemingly less sins breed and and breed this hardness of heart, which I think is what definitely the, the people of Israel. It didn't start off with oh, we're going to sacrifice our children, but it started off with something much less, and and got to this point. And with that comes the hardness of the heart that you don't even see this as a yeah. as a problem. And that's when, of course, yeah. The hammer of God's law through the prophet Ezekiel has to speak this in such blatantly, blatant and explicit terms to the people so that they see how this is completely contrary to the way of, of true worship and the way of life in Christ. And that the end of this thing is death, but the way of, Christ, of, of Yahweh is life. 
This section concludes before there's a major turn in verse 33 with that verse 32 where you get a picture as to what these elders who've come to Ezekiel really have in mind. Mm-hmm. So, it sounds like they, they kind of like their idolatry and that they maybe want the Lord's approval even. Take us into that last verse of the section. Right, exactly. So it says, what is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries and the worships, wood and stone. So this really is, gets to the motivation of idolatry. And and in verse 31 as well, where there brings up the idea of, shall I be inquired of you, O house of Israel? And then God swearing by himself, right? As I live, declares the Lord, which will come up in 33, which I think is a great, place where we see a turning point, which we'll see here. I will not be inquired of you precisely because you are going, wanting to be not as I've called you to be as my people, but you want to be like the, the other, other nations and, and assimilate their, their ideas and their, and their worship. And again, Hummel, he, he's got a great commentary on this. And I really did appreciate some of his words here. He, he also ties this to the idea of cultural religion, even today. And this idea of let us be like the nation is, uh, this is, uh, really comparable to how liberal Christianity has a tendency always, even today, and you see it in different stages and different generations, but it's always this idea of becoming a cultural religion and giving simply a blessing to the norms and the ideals of of the other nations, uh, of the surrounding pagan society, where we can assimilate these things and be like them to see what they are, to see that they're their fruits are pleasing to the eye and and and, and good for eating. And yet this is not who God has called us out of the nations to be. A reason for the people of Ezekiel's day to repent and reason for us in our day to repent as well. We're going to pick up more of Ezekiel's sermon on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 20 with Pastor Sam Wergout. We'll be right back. Please stick around. How do you create a great workplace culture? Creativity is one of the many ways to accomplish this goal. Lutheran Church Extension Fund is excited to present our fall series, Creativity for a Dynamic Workplace, on November 4th and 11th. Join Stephen Robinson, former Executive Vice President of Chick-fil-A, Inc., and Mike Abershoff, former Navy Captain and author of the best-selling book, It's Your Ship, who will share perspectives on dynamic workplaces and facilitating a creative space for work communities. Visit lcef.org webinars to sign up today. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, October 13th. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 27 to 44 with Pastor Sam Wergau. He's the pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, prior to the break, we made it up through verse 32, and we were saying there's a pretty big transition in verse 33. As we prepare to read the rest of the text, what's the transition, what's the move that Ezekiel makes in his sermon beginning at verse 33? Yeah, so if you kind of think of this as a timeline, which we've been doing, you have Ezekiel's contemporaries and who he's preaching to, or to whom he's preaching, and he's been looking back, right, looking back at the history of Israel from Exodus through desert wandering. And even as we, we started into the, into the promised land and looking at the abominations of those and brings it just as we just had right before us, right to the present day. So now in 33, we really do see this turning point. And I love how he starts it with, as I live, declares the Lord, this idea of what God is going to do. So now we move from the pres- past and the present now to the future, to, to what God is about to, to accomplish, what Yahweh is about to accomplish in light of everything that's taken place in the past and what is contemporarily true for Ezekiel and, and the people. So let's read the rest of Ezekiel's sermon. We're in Ezekiel 20, picking it up again at verse 33. 
As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me, but my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, There all the house of Israel, all of them, shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts, with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you, when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord." When I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers, and there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. That is the end of our text for today. The rest of this sermon from Ezekiel. Was Ezekiel 20 verses 33 to 44. So, Pastor Workout, as as we begin this section of Ezekiel's sermon, a lot of this language sounds a lot like the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, thinking back to where Ezekiel started. Now he comes back to that language, but he's going to apply it to what's going to happen in the future. The mighty hand, the outstretched arm, the wrath, maybe, although these words have a, a slightly different flavor the way they're used here is the way I think we usually hear them in Exodus. Right, exactly. Uh, and I think this this is something to be said that these phrases that God typically uses, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm, the wrath being fought out, was speaking of God's ferocity towards Egypt and his power and bringing his people out of Egypt and free them. Here, they're actually turned against the people in their sins, which really does get us to the proper understanding of of what this what the real problem here is and the problem for 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 the people of Israel was not simply that they were in bondage in Egypt the problem was that god was their god and they were brought out of Egypt that he could be their god right and so even after they're freed from pharaoh they still are turning to the to their into themselves, really, in Carvatus S, turning into themselves to make themselves their own gods, which is why God then comes forward with this power and with this might to 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 do these sorts of things. And this is again the the calling of them to repentance. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's striking how this Exodus language returns, 
and, and particularly, you know, bringing you out with a, a mighty hand and outstretched arm, especially when you think about the way that the Lord described that generation that was there in Egypt in the first part of this sermon, mm-hmm. their, their problem there wasn't so much slavery. That was certainly a problem. But the, the real thing that the Lord identified here in this context was the idolatry of Egypt yeah. and the way that it had infected the people there in Egypt. They stuck with that idolatry. Right. Here, the Lord's saying, I'm going to bring you out of this idolatry. This idolatry has been clinging to you all the way back to Egypt. I'm going to bring you out of that idolatry. And and yeah, I mean, that that language there is, it's it's kind of wonderful. I, I think that's the, I don't know, in the, in the fullest sense of that term, mm-hmm. how the Lord combines, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, okay, this is the gospel section of your sermon, <laughs> right, Ezekiel? But there's still judgment tied yeah. in at the same time. Those two things are going hand in hand at this moment. Yeah, it's, it really is wonderfully or beautifully weaved together because both those things do go together, properly distinguished, of course, right? But so much so to know that God's work of of, of salvation, of, 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 of the good news is brought about through his calling us to repentance. So breaking down the idols, breaking down the false belief in order that we can extol the, the good news of God's, of God's mercy and God's name for us. So yeah, they really are. Uh, it, it, it isn't, it isn't like a clear cut kind of sermon where you have 10 minutes of law and 10 minutes of gospel. Uh, this is very much, uh, striking to the heart of the people to really give them that consolation that they need, but to demonstrate how bad their sins actually are, how heinous and, and diabolical and diabolical and def- defiled the people actually are and, and bringing them to that point. And of course it, it does end beautifully, which we will get there too, as well with 44, that the fact is that God does this deals with them for his namesake uh, and not because of anything that they've accomplished. But, but yeah, I mean, the, these two things that are kind of held up, you know, this idea of this mighty hand and this outstretched arm and this wrath being poured out really go hand in hand. But also we do bring that even this idea of salvation and judgment, not only for the Ezekiel's contemporaries, the people of the Old Testament, but even today, Hummel makes a note of this. He says, salvation and judgment are mingled in one event. What better type could one desire of the cross where the entirety of God's wrath at humanity's sin was poured out on the sinless Christ, uh, who by his atonement procured salvation for all. We confess the cross of Christ to be the locale of God's maximal judgment of sin and there visited on the son vicariously in our place for the sins of all who must rely, who must rely upon this unless they perish or they believe and are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. As Ezekiel continues into verses 35 and following, the wilderness returns again, mm-hmm. but this time it's a slightly different wilderness, the wilderness of the peoples. God's judgment is coming face to face. They're not going to get away with it. What's how's, How is this now, again, picking up that same imagery, but now applying it into the future for these people with the wilderness? Right. So there's this idea of kind of almost like a second exodus here that that he's talking about. And yeah, instead of like the physical locale of the of the of the, the, the wilderness, uh, you know, between for better, lack of a better word, Egypt and, and the promised land here, it's the wilderness, the wilderness of the, of the peoples. And, and Hummel puts it this way. He says, it's a sort of no man's land that nobody calls home where the plethora of religious options provide just a bleak terrain as a desert where people must make spiritual choices and where God will, will then confront his people. So it's kind of this, yeah, no man's land 
this wilderness of the people is, well, this is what Israel wanted, right? Take your pick. <laughs> and, uh, and this is where God then confronts face to face, face his people. And there he says, I, I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. So this idea of rod, it's interesting that it translates it that way, but this is the idea of a staff, right? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, which I think really does refer to this idea of a shepherd's practice of, of not only counting the sheep with the rod, but also of separating or selecting members of the flock, kind of the culling or the rejection of the inferior, unsuitable or unusable for uh, those who are fit for then, you know, those who go one side, those who go to the other, which then gets to what he gets picks up in 38 with this idea of purging, the idea that he'll purge out the rebels that are among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where the sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of, of Israel. So this idea that that this purging of the rebellers, rebels and the transgressors, just like we had with the the first wilderness wandering, the, the first exodus, the rebellious generation in the wilderness did not enter the promised land, right? But the purpose of this this purging or this calling, if you will, is, is, is for the entering into the bond of the covenant and the land. Because the Lord is a jealous God, he's not going to tolerate sin or synergism or syncretistic worship. But he punishes sin and he doesn't just ignore sin. And, and, and this does. So what separates faithful Israel from the rest is really what has always been the case. It's the righteousness that comes by faith in the promises of God and in the Messiah. And I really do think we, we understand this idea of this, this, um, this rod passing over and bringing, bringing into the bond of the covenant or the purging out of the rebels from among you and those transgressors. Let's take this to our present day context. This is exactly what baptism does, right? It drowns the old Adam. It kills that rebel in us. The We still have that old Adam around our necks. He's a good swimmer, but that's why we have a daily baptism, right? A daily baptism of the drowning of the new man, that the old man, that a new man may emerge and arise to live before God. This, this is what God does. And this is how God deals with, with sin by purging out the old and the new man, Christ in us emerging and arising through the word of forgiveness, through the absolution. And all of this is done, as we've heard time and time again in Ezekiel, that the people would know he's the Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So this is, God is always testifying to who he is and that he is not like the other gods out there. He is the one true God who says, you know, trust me, you shall have no other gods before me because he is the one true God who is the creator and the redeemer of his creation. Now, what about verse 39, where the Lord seems to say, hey, if you want to be an idolater, go for it. What, what's going on there? Yeah, that's, that is kind of interesting. So 39 really is, is again directed at Israel's false worship. And I think specifically here, it's very interesting to notice that it talks about his name, right? So as for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me. But my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. This is really something, and this this is what God does. You know, he he hands the rebellious nation over to their sins, right? He he hands them over to 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 ultimately get what they what they want, which isn't the way of life, it is the way of death. Not that he desires that as he's calling them to repentance, but what his main point there too is, is that if you will not listen to me, go go do that. But my holy name you will no longer use. Don't use my name in line with these things. Don't use my name to profane the true worship and to profane my name with with all this idolatry. That is, don't associate my name with, with these things because I am not the same as those idols. 
Hmm. Right. So, so you may, con- you might get to continue it because the Lord, you know, he gives you over to that, but don't think you're getting away with it or don't think right. that you've somehow defeated the Lord or actually done something to him. He will protect the holiness of his name. I mean, this, mm-hmm. we'll get to this more with the very last verse, but you know, the, the sake of the Lord's name has been a prominent theme throughout this sermon and certainly remains prominent in the life of the Christian. Particularly, it comes to mind the, the first petition of the Lord's prayer, hallowed be thy name. This is something we still pray for. Mm-hmm, exactly. Or the second commandment for that matter in the Old Testament too, right? So God's name uh, shall not be misused. But yeah, exactly. That's our first petition of our Lord's prayer. Uh, the first thing we ask of God is for that his name to be to be hallowed. And it's holy already, as Luther puts it in the small catechism. But of course, we, we pray all the petitions almost against ourselves, right? Because we do not hallow his name, but we pray that it would be hallowed among us also through the, to the pure preaching of his word and through right living according to that word, doctrine and, and practice. And of course, we always see the name of God uh, in connection as well with the name of, of, of Jesus, right? The Lord saves. And that is the name by which we call upon God in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. It directs us outside of our our own doing, our own works, to the work of God for us and the grace of God and the mercy of God located in the incarnate Son of God, who by his death and resurrection has, has uh, won for us the victory. As we get to verse 40, the Lord brings up his holy mountain. And and over and over again, he says, there, in that place, there I'll do these things, which I think connects back to what we were talking about earlier with the high places. What's the what's going on with the holy mountain in verses 40 and following? Right. So this idea of this holy mountain is, is God is, again, we kind of talked about this a little bit before with really what is the problem with the high places. And that is, well, God hasn't attached his promise to that. And I think that's a significant thing here because when we come to the holy mountain throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we understand that the mountain is that place really of true and acceptable worship. The holy mountain of the Lord is the place of true and acceptable acceptable worship of the new Israel. And there, I, I kind of made a connection. Maybe a, it might not be anything, but where we talk about his name, so second commandment, now we get into the worship of his name and how the second commandment flows into the third commandment that we do not, that we remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy and not despising preaching in his word, but holding it sacred and gladly hearing and learning it. I think there's a connection there. I really didn't bring that out too much in my thinking, but at the base level here, we understand that the importance of this place and Hummel makes a note of this, that the importance of a place of worship is really underscored here. There's the repetition of there three times in, in, in verse 40. And Hummel makes the point, Christian worship is not bound to one geographical mountain, right? But it takes place in spirit and in truth, as Jesus teaches the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. But yet neither can it be divorced from the incarnation that is Bethlehem and Calvary and the Mount of Olives and Christ's work in those specific places for us, his incarnation, his passion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So Hummel makes this point, as long as we are in the world of time and space, worship will take place at some specific time and place where God's word is proclaimed truly and his sacraments administered rightly, and not merely in the privacy of the individual heart, apart from the body of Christ, the church. It has been said that those who that he who does not worship at specific times and places probably does not worship at all. And really what Hummel's point that he's kind of making, which really is Ezekiel's point to the people here, is that God attaches his promise to this holy mountain. And this is where the Lord has promised to be and to 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 be present for his people. And and um those high places and that pagan worship does do not have the 
the, the promise of God's favor that he gives in his word where he has promised to be to be for his people. And likewise today, where God has promised to be present for his people is in his word and his sacraments. That is where Christ is present for his people in baptism in the Lord's Supper and the word of absolution. In these places, there we know God is for us. And there we know that we worship the one true God in spirit and in truth, in, in faith and his promises. As the Lord describes a little bit of the the worship that happens there, he says, I will accept you, which is quite the the turn from, from what's been said before about the people being defiled and the Lord ready to pour his wrath out on them multiple times. Here he now says, I'm going to accept you. Right. Is it something inherent in the people that's changed? What's How is the Lord going to accept them now? Right, exactly. I really do, do think this ties us right to Christ, the idea. Because we talk about uh, a lot of times offerings, sacrifices being acceptable to God. Here's the person. And so we really need to understand that the Lord does not accept the people based upon any natural right or claim of acceptance by God, except it's only through God's grace, according to his promises. And that promise finally finds its ultimate fulfillment in the promise of the son and the Messiah, the Christ. So um, Israel in Ezekiel's time, as well as today, are only accepted before God by grace for Christ's sake and in view of his atoning sacrifice. And they're actually too we have this understanding that that Christ's sacrifice in Ephesians 5, 2 and 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 are described as this kind of fragrant offering that, that is accepted by the Father, that his work and his sacrifice for the sins of the world are accepted so that we in Christ, by his vicarious work for us, are accepted before the Father, that we have this divine favor because earned by the vicarious work of Christ, who was the acceptable sacrifice accepted by God for the Old Testament church as well as for the New Testament church. I think that really leads into the last two verses of this sermon that Ezekiel preaches with, as the people are described, you know, there, so they're in that place on the Lord's Holy Mountain. You're going to remember what you did and you're going to loathe that (laughs) because of all the evil that you committed, but you're going to know that I'm the Lord. And the reason that I've done this isn't because of who you were or how great or awesome you were, because you weren't. It's because of who I am for my name's sake that, I mean, I think this, you know, the, the theme of salvation by grace, which has been in the background of everything that the Lord had done for his people, but they rejected. And now he's going to do again, that, that really comes to the, to the full front here as the sermon concludes. Yeah, exactly. It is kind of interesting because you have kind of this, uh, this talk of being accepted and then suddenly we go back to loathing our sins again, or yeah. the people of Israel loathing our sins. But that's good, actually. I think that's really good because while we're still in the flesh, we never get over this continual repentance. And the Christian life is, is very cyclical in that sense. I brought up earlier the idea of that Christian life is a daily baptism, which Luther talks about in the large catechism, or this idea of uh, daily dying to sin and rising again that he brings up in the small catechism or what he brings up in the Lord's prayer for the uh, the fifth petition that we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. But therefore we pray, uh, forgive us our trespasses. So Hummel makes a note on this. Um, Anyone can regret his past mistakes, but only those who have been overcome by the law and who now know the comfort of the forgiving gospel can recognize the depths of the depravity from which they have been delivered and to which the old Adam is still in them, is still prone throughout earthly life. So if you really did look back to the people of Israel and this, you know, they're continually called back to repentance. That's, that's their history, whether it's after the exodus and in the wilderness being called to repentance, facing, facing the consequences for their sins, but God continually using that to call them back to repentance and to faith in Christ. And 
I think also of after they enter in the promised land, Ezekiel doesn't mention this uh, specifically, but the cycle of the judges, which I think we've studied before in, in Sharp Iron way back when. But the idea that there's this continual, you know, abandoning God, being punished by these foreign rulers, repenting and calling upon the Lord and the Lord delivering, right? Which is really an image of our entire Christian life. It's not that we go on sinning that grace may abound by no means, but at the same point, we do understand the depth of our depravity in this flesh, that we are sinners who have no other recourse but to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. And that's why we have that clear promise there at the end in 44, that he doesn't deal with us uh, according to our evil ways, but according for, to his namesake. And again, I think that beautifully kind of brings this proclamation of the namesake of the Lord is his, is his mercy and is his gospel message, which is ultimately seen in that name that is above all names by which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And that is the name of Jesus, uh, savior from sin. Pastor Wargo, with just about a minute left on the morning, as you reflect on this text from Ezekiel 20, how would you summarize it, help us to, to see it again and point us through this text to our savior, Jesus Christ? Right. I think as anytime we have these, these, uh, harsh law that really Ezekiel or any of the prophets are kind of laying forward for the people we, we do. And I, I've been on a big kick with this, but I think we see it here is, is God's work in his, we call it his alien work is the preaching of this law and the, and the preaching of, of, of calling a sin, what it is and, 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 and calling the people to repentance, but that is always to serve. And that's the will and God's desire for Ezekiel's contemporaries and for his church today to not ignore sin to call the people to repentance that they may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life in the Messiah, which is where Ezekiel's looking forward to, where Israel ought to be. That's the way that is that uh, God would lead his people in, is to look forward to this coming Messiah who would give his life for the salvation uh, of the entire world to, to cleanse us of all of our sins, no matter how, where we've been defiled by all of our idolatry or idolatry, all of our wrong faith in our thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive our life, not, uh, not according to our deeds, but for his name's sake, that name in which we are baptized, that name in which we live. Pastor Sam Wergel is pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 27 to 44. Pastor Wergel, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, it's always a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.